Well, good morning, High Point, or good afternoon, depending on which service that you're watching. My name is Parker Richardson, and I have the privilege of leading us in our next installment of our Habitology series. And uh, this morning, we are going to talk about Bible reading. And uh, let me just say this from the outset. Um, I don't claim to be an expert. Uh, I am actually approaching this very humbly, uh, trembling, and you're going to hear a lot of God's Word today. And uh, I don't say this to be cute or funny. Um, We hear sometimes that too much Bible in a sermon is a bad thing. And uh, if you're in that camp, uh, my prayer is that by the end of this message, uh, that it's a good thing for you. So uh, let me read 2 Timothy 3.16. If, you're, if you have a Bible, if you don't, go ahead and grab one. But if you have a Bible, go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and that'll be kind of our launch pad text for where we go. And we're going to be moving quickly through some scriptures. So if you just want to stay in 2 Timothy 3, that's where we will start, and that's where we will end. So let me read this verse to you. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this. It says, All scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Um, God, I pray that this message does all of those things, Uh, that it teaches, that it rebukes us or reproves us, that it corrects us, and that it trains us in righteousness. And God, I confess that I can't do any of those things, Uh, but I'm grateful that your word can, as we just read. So Father, do that in this this time. Work amongst us, Um, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so to give you some context of 2 Timothy chapter 3, Uh, Paul is writing this from prison. So Paul was in prison for the second time in Rome and Paul knew that he was about to die. Um, This is actually his last letter that he ever wrote uh, that's recorded in the scriptures. It's to Timothy and Timothy was his protege. And uh, this is where we get the verses like I fought the fight, um, I have finished the race, all these verses where Paul can see his death is in view. And one of the last things that he decides to do is to write a letter to Timothy who he's invested his life into. And uh, the whole letter is encouraging Timothy to continue in the gospel, to stick to the gospel. And he talks about the last days, particularly we're starting in verse 14, but verses one through 13, Paul talks about how the last days are going to be full of people that are proud, that love themselves, that love money, that are abusive, that are arrogant. Uh, Sounds like a familiar day, doesn't it? Uh, Like he says, there's going to be people that seem godly. They have the appearance of godliness, but they're evil, all sorts of things. And then we see in uh, verse 14, he says, but as for you, so he says, here's how everybody else is going to be. Here's how things are going to be in the last days. But Timothy, as for you, here's what I want you to do. And he's communicating a new thought here. And this is what he says. He says, continue in what you've learned and what you firmly believe. Now that word continue is interesting because when we hear the word continue, we think continue means to keep moving, to like to progress. The word continue there in the Greek actually means remain. This is the same word that Jesus uses in John 15 when he says, remain in me and I in you. So what he's saying here, he doesn't say continue on. He says, continue in. He's saying, stay here. And as we read in verse 16, he's talking about the word of God. He's talking about the gospel. And he says, stay here. And what he's communicating to Timothy is as the days get evil, God's word is not something we move on from. It's not something you mature out of. It's not something you graduate from. It's not something that we leave and we call in every few weeks and check in to see how it's doing. He says, no, stay here. It's like a parent looking at a child and saying, stay right there. Do not move. 
This is what Paul is charging Timothy to do with his word. Stay right there, continue there, do not leave. And then he says this, knowing from whom you've learned it. And what he's talking about here, if you look back in 2 Timothy 1, Paul specifically mentions Timothy's mother and his grandmother. And we know at least that Paul's referring to them because they grew him up in the word. He says, knowing from who you've learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. And this is the only time in the New Testament Paul uses that term sacred writings. He's saying they're holy, they're set apart. And we'll talk about what makes them holy and set apart in just a second. But this is another sermon for another day. But parents, we have to raise our children up in the word. There will be a day when your child reaches this age where you can no longer make them read the Bible. We've got to speak it as we go through about our day, as Deuteronomy 6 says. We've got to talk about it as we sit and as we go along the way. We've got to make our children read it and train them in it as they grow up because there will be a day and they will reach an age where you can no longer force them to read this. And Timothy was taught these things from his childhood. And then he says this, the sacred writings, which are able to make us wise for salvation. These writings are able to make us wise for salvation. This word does not save you, but it is the story of the one who does. And the more that we learn it, the more that we take it in, the more wisdom we have for salvation. He says, it will make you wise for salvation. And then we get to verse 16. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Your translation that you're reading may say it's inspired or it's God breathed. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? The Greek literally means theopneustos. It means God breathed straight from the Greek. And what he's talking about here is God is the original author of scripture. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Every single word in this Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is written by God. Yes, it was written. All these documents in this word were written by human authors, but the Lord was leading them. The Holy Spirit was guiding them. What he's saying is the the original authors in this text, they weren't just winging it, but they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit and they were writing exactly what God wanted them to write. We have the very words from the God of the universe, his words in these pages. They are God inspired. He wrote them. They are God breathed. Let me give you some more examples of this. Second Peter chapter one says this, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And you may be thinking, okay, isn't that just talking about the Old Testament? This specific text is, but Jesus even tells us in John 16 that this was his plan Uh, for the New Testament. Check this out. This is the linchpin between the Old and the New Testament. I want you to see this. John 16, verse 12 through 15. He says this, this is Jesus talking. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And he will glorify me for he will make what is mine and declare it to you. And all that the father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus says, I've got a lot more to say to you, but you're not ready for it now. And the Holy Spirit is going to tell you all of those things that I want to tell you. And he's specifically looking at his apostles when he tells them this, the Holy Spirit is gonna lead you and tell you exactly what I want to say. And we know this because Paul gives credit to the Holy Spirit as he's writing his letters. 
1 Corinthians 2, he says this, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this, I'm imparting this to you in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. First Thessalonians, Paul says it again. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, these words that I'm sending you, these letters that I'm sending you, they're the word of God. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you for believers. This is what makes the Bible holy. I don't know about you, your Bible may on the spine. You can't get very far in my Bible before it says holy Bible. Why does it say that? because this is the holy word of a holy God. We have his words on a page. This is his holy standard, right? And we don't meet that standard. So what did he do? He sent his holy son to live a holy life on our behalf. And then he died on a cross and suffered what we deserve to suffer. So his holiness and his righteousness could be imparted to us. And not only did he do that, he sent his holy spirit to write and preserve these documents for us so that he could be in us and help us read this book so that we could live holy lives in response to what our savior has done for us. This is why it is a holy book. These are the very words of God, his very words on a page for us. It's incredible if you think about it. And because they are God's word, they carry the same character and nature as God. God is always true. He will always be true. God does not lie. And these words will always be true. They are eternally true. God is without error. And these words have no error in them. The error comes when us fallen, broken men try to interpret it. But these words as they stand are the very words of God and they do not have error in them. They are the very holy words of God. And back to 2 Timothy 3.16, because they are God's words, because they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, they are profitable for us because we literally have God's words on a page, right? They're profitable um, for teaching, right? They teach us things about God. They teach us the things of God. They teach us that he created the world. We call these things doctrines. They teach us things that are true about God and about the world that he's created. Not only do they teach us, but they rebuke us or they reprove us. What does that mean? They confront us in our error. They confront us in our sin. They stop us in our tracks when we are not living according to the way that God has created the world and his standard that he's called us to live. But they don't just stop us in our tracks. What do they do? They correct us, right? They give us, the word in the Greek literally means to make something crooked straight again. They correct us. They point us back to the gospel. They point us back to the standard in scripture. And not only do they do that, but they train us in righteousness. They train us on how to live godly lives. They train us to think more in line with our heavenly father. They train us to live like Jesus and love and serve and sacrifice like Jesus so that they don't just do that because look at verse 17, so that the man of God may be complete. And that word complete there means mature, that we would be mature in Christ. You cannot be spiritually mature apart from the word of God. You just can't. You cannot be spiritually mature apart from this word, that we would be complete, mature, equipped for every good work. God has planned for us to do good works in this life and you will be equipped for those when you spend time in his word. All throughout scripture, God has elevated his word. All throughout scripture, 
He's elevated his word. Let me give you a few examples in scripture. This is my favorite one. Psalms 38, verse two. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Check this out. For you have exalted above all things. Here's what he's exalted above all things. Your name and your word. God has exalted his very word to the same degree of his name. Isaiah 55, for as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Hebrews 4:12. For the word of God is living and active. It's not a dead book. This is a living book. This is true. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You know this as you read this. It show it shines God's light on the ugly parts of our heart. And we read it and we go, ooh, wow, I do not meet this standard. Proverbs 3. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. And this is probably the most beautiful text about God's word. I'm currently trying to memorize this. I would love for you to memorize it with me. This is Psalms 19, seven through 11. It says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned and in keeping them there is great reward. What a beautiful text. The Holy Spirit has inspired and wrote every single word on, this, on these pages. He has inspired it. He has led these men. He's carried these men to write exactly what the God of the universe wanted to write. The Holy Spirit not only wrote the Bible, but this is what's even more incredible. The Holy Spirit teaches us as we read it. The Holy Spirit teaches us as we read the scriptures. Let me show you in the word. John 14 says this, verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. The Holy Spirit will. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance, all that I have said to you. Second Timothy 2, seven, think over what I say for the Lord will give you understanding. We think he gives us the understanding. Luke 24, Jesus says, then he opened their minds. This is Jesus. Then he being Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The Holy Spirit wrote this word and the Holy Spirit teaches us as we read it. And this is why this whole kind of new age thinking where people go, you know what? I don't really read the Bible. I just kind of pray a lot and just pray for God to drop truth to me. That is not biblical. It's not. The Holy Spirit, that's offensive to the Holy Spirit. Honestly, the Holy Spirit says, I wrote you a book and I'm in you to help you interpret the things in the word. We cannot live apart from his word and find truth. Justin Peter says this. I love this quote. He says, if you want to hear God speak, read the Bible. If you wanna hear God speak out loud, read the Bible out loud. God has spoken in his word. This is Hebrews 1. We won't go there, but God has spoken in his word. Check out Hebrews 1.1. You cannot enjoy God apart from his word. You cannot. 
You cannot experience and enjoy God apart from his word. If we don't meet him here, we don't meet him. We don't. And you say, well, Parker, can't you enjoy God in creation? Yes, but how do we know that God created the world? He's told us in his word. How do we know that creation gives him glory? Because he's told us in his word. Can't you enjoy God in worship? Yes, but how do we know all these things that we're singing about God? Because he's revealed us, us to them, he's revealed them to us in his word. And the best worship songs are not the ones that come up with new fancy words, they're the ones that are true to his word. Those are the best worship songs. Can't you enjoy God in prayer? Yes, but how do we know that we even have a high priest who's given us access to the Father? Because he tells us in Hebrews. How do we know what to pray? Jesus says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. How do we know about his kingdom and his will? As we pray, he's revealed it to us in his word. This is how the God of the universe has chosen to reveal himself to us. And if we, do, if we don't meet him here, then we do not meet with him. He has inspired this word. His Holy Spirit has written it for us and his Holy Spirit is in us to help us interpret it. So, that's a lot of the why. And we should honestly do a whole sermon series on reading the Bible, uh, but in effort to give you some of the how, and here's my dilemma. I wanted to tell you why you should read the Bible, but I also wanna tell you how. And I don't wanna tell you how without giving you some of the why. So we're gonna stop there with the why, hopefully because the God of the universe wrote it is enough why. And I wanna give you some tips on how. All right, I wanna give you some practical kind of running lanes and this is not an exhaustive list or anything like that. Um, there's a great book. We're actually gonna have a slide uh, with the discussion questions that are resources. If you don't have the book, How to Understand and Apply the New Testament by Andrew Nacelli, um, it's a great book. Get it, it, you'll be off to the races. There's one chapter in it that has to do with the Greek and it's pretty technical, but every single other chapter, just skip that chapter. Every single other chapter is phenomenal and it will give you plenty uh, to take off running and reading God's word. But I wanna give you some of the how. And one of the things I hear people say all the time is the Bible is the roadmap for life. It's God's roadmap for your life, right? And it is to an extent, um, but we don't use it that way. We don't use it the right way. And what we do is we come up with a question like, should I buy this house? And we close our eyes and we flip through, don't we? You've probably done this before. I've done this before. And we go, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. And we go, I need to buy this house really quickly. God just told me that someone's gonna buy this house. And we forget that that's John 13, 27. And it's literally Jesus talking to Judas. And he says, you're about to betray me and go do it quickly, right? Or we have this big circumstance where, you know, we've been offered a job in Texas and we need to move or we're trying to debate moving. So we're like, oh God, show me something in your word. And we just kind of look around and this was my Bible reading for the day. And it says, but wild animals will lie down there and their houses will be full of howling creatures. Their ostriches will dwell. And we go, that sounds kind of Texas. Like maybe I should go. And here's the thing. That is not the way to read the Bible. It's not. The Bible is not a magic eight ball to give you the answer to every question in your life. It's not, in fact, it's actually insulting to the Bible. Instead of answering every question for you, God has written us a book called Proverbs to give you wisdom to make decisions and to make your own decisions. And if we're honest, what we're really asking is not, God, do you want me to move here? What we're really asking is, God, is this gonna work out? Are my circumstances gonna be easy? And, and, and am I gonna make more money? That's what we're really praying. Because if we were seeking God's word for that decision, we would look in Colossians and say, okay, God, in 1 Corinthians 10, God, I exist to give you glory. That's why I'm here on this earth. 
to glorify you, to make you known and to know you. In Ephesians 5, if you're married, I've made a covenant with my spouse. I need to honor them and serve them and lay down my life for them. Also in Ephesians, I need to train up my children. Is this new job going to help me glorify you more and free me up to love my spouse more and to raise my children? If so, then yeah, let's go. But we don't filter it through those. We secretly wanna know, God, am I gonna make more money if I do this? Can you tell me before I take the risk? Can you give me a sign in your word? And that's not how we use it. That's not good exegesis. And you've probably never heard that word before, but we're gonna talk about these three words, all right? Exegesis, eisegesis, and narcissus. So these are different methods for interpreting the Bible. One of those is good, two of those are not. Exegesis is the good one. I'm giving you the good one first, all right? Exegesis, you'll notice the EX at the beginning of that word. It's where we get the word like exit and leave and out. Um, ek in the Greek, um, EK in English, ek means out or out from. And what it's talking about here, exegesis is taking the things the word says and drawing them out. It's asking the question, what does the word mean? It's drawing out the meaning from the word. And the Holy Spirit wrote it. And here's what we do in America. We put those two dreaded words at the end of that sentence. We say, what does it mean to you? What does this verse mean to you? And here's the thing. This is where we go wrong because the authors that wrote this text had specific meanings. These are specific letters and documents written to specific people or groups of people and they have meaning. And everything you think of when you read a verse is not what it means. I could be reading a verse and think of Buzz Lightyear and all these things. And everything that pops into my head when I read the Bible is not what it means. It's the same thing with feelings. Feelings are important, okay? Don't get me wrong. Your feelings are very important. If you read this and you don't feel anything, then something is wrong. If I'm being candid, feelings could be the difference between heaven and hell. Feelings are important, but everything you feel as you read a verse is not what it means. What the author who wrote it intended for it to mean is what it means. And it's our goal in good exegesis is to draw out, okay, what does it say? Not what does it say to me? What does it say and what does it mean? And we're gonna talk about how we do that. But before we do that, one of the things that we do is we do eisegesis. Eisegesis, the Greek word ice means into. And this is where we are guilty. We read things into the text. We read cultural things into the text. We read American things into the text. We read what we want the text to say into the text. And let me give you an example of this. One of the things that I hear people say all the time, it's on t-shirts and things, is God will never give you more than you can handle. That's one of the things that people say. We've, made, we've sold t-shirts, not we, high point, but people have sold t-shirts saying that phrase, God will never give you more than you can handle. And if you Google that phrase, it actually gives you a verse. And it's bad exegesis of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It says this, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This verse is not about hard circumstances. It's about temptation. And we read this and we want it to say, God will never give you more than you can handle. God will never give you circumstances that you can't handle. It's about temptation. And here's the thing, if you're gonna use absolutes from the scripture, absolutes meaning words like always or never, God will never do this or he'll always do this. Let's make sure that they are clear in scripture. Like God will never lie. God will never sin. God will always hold true to his promises. But God will never give you more than you can handle is bad exegesis of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God will always give you a way out when you're tempted. 
He also says in James, God will never tempt you. Notice it says in 1 Corinthians 13, that he will never let you be tempted. He's not tempting you. He'll never let you be tempted. And every time, he'll never let you be tempted without giving you a way out. And every time you're tempted, God will always give you an opportunity to say no to that temptation. Let me give you an example, Lazarus, right? Jesus literally let Lazarus get sick and die. How is Lazarus gonna handle that one? He's not. The story of the Bible is actually God giving people more than they can handle over and over and over again. So he can show up and he can handle it for us for his power and his glory and his name and for our good. He's always gonna give you more than you can handle. You can't overcome anything in this life apart from his spirit working in you. There's no one righteous, not even one. So eisegesis, we need to be careful not to read things into the text, read American cultural things into the text, read things that we would do in the text. Narcissus is the next one. Now this is one that is very prominent. It's kind of surfaced lately in the American church. Narcissus, where we get the word narcissist, this is where we read ourselves into the text. And let me just give you a general rule. As you read through the Old Testament, a, a good general rule of thumb is do not insert yourself as the hero of Old Testament stories. Don't. It's not pointing to you. And I'll show you in just a second. And I, I don't say that to be funny, but we do this. The, the most common example is David and Goliath. And we read that and we go, okay, David uh, believed in God. He conquered his giants. I believe in God. I can conquer my giants. David and Goliath is not about you. It's not. And for the most part, the Bible is not about you. Look at what Jesus said. John 5, 39. I wanna give you some scripture here. Jesus says this. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning who? Himself. The word Moses and the prophets, that means the Old Testament. That's what they called it, the law of Moses and the prophets. He says, you look for them, for things, and they're concerning me. Luke 24, Jesus says this in verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. These words are about him, not about us. And when we interpret those thinking they're about us, we're actually not interpreting the way, the very way that Jesus told us to interpret it himself. David and Goliath is about a future David, a better David, a greater David who is to come and slay a greater giant. It is not application for you to go and slay the giants in your life because you can't do that apart from the Holy Spirit. And it's just a good general rule of thumb. I'll give you a character at the end of this message that you can insert yourself in, uh, but it's not David. You are not the heroes of the Old Testament. And just because God did something in them is not a guarantee that he's gonna do that in you. It was all pointing to a greater one that was to come and slay a greater giant, Jesus. Narcissus is when we read ourselves into the Old Testament stories specifically, or when we read ourselves into the Bible. So how do we do good exegesis? 2 Timothy 2.7 says this, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And so many of us, we wanna separate those two, right? And it's not separate. Jesus says, you think, and I'll give you understanding. Bible reading is a humble thing, but it's an active thing. It's something we have to work at. It's something we have to train ourselves in. It's something you have to put in the time and effort. It's not something that we just flippantly open and pick a random verse and just start reading from there. You do this, you do good exegesis all the time. 
You do this in your emails, right? Imagine you get an email from a friend or someone at work and you just start in the middle and you pick one sentence and you read it, you dissect it, you draw you know, lines through it, you underline and circle things, just that one sentence in the middle. And then you meditate on it, you memorize it, all these different things. We don't do that, do we? No, we read the sentence in the middle in light of the whole thing. We figure out how does this sentence fit in the whole thing? And then it's good for us to read that individual sentence. But you do good exegesis all the time. So here's some kind of running lanes to give you as you do good exegesis. We need to know, the goal is to know what does this say and what does it mean? What did the author mean when he wrote it? What did God intend when he wrote this text? Now, a good helpful tip is to know the genre of the passage passage that you're reading. Just like music and movies, Bible documents have genres in it. Books have genres. For example, the gospels are narratives. Luke starts his gospel saying, Theophilus, I've worked hard to give you an orderly account of things that actually happened. Meaning that it's not symbolism. You don't read the gospels and think that it's one big allegory or one big metaphor. It's actual people doing actual things. So the the narratives will have, he went here and he said this, and they responded like this. It'll have people and characters and quotes and stories and actions. The epistles on the other hand are different. The epistles are specific letters written to specific people dealing with specific issues. So as we read through the letters, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, as we read through these epistles, as we call them, they're letters, they make arguments. And most of the epistles are written to deal with false teaching that has risen up in a specific group of people or a church. And if you know the context of how they're written, we need to trace the argument as we read through the epistles. It's different from a narrative. Revelation is apocalyptic literature. It is very symbolic. Revelation is very symbolic and it has epistle in it. It has letters in it. There's seven letters to seven different churches in the book of Revelation. So as you read through those letters, trace the arguments that um, Jesus is revealing to John as John wrote these down. As uh, we read through the apocalyptic part of it, just know there's a lot of symbolism in it. Proverbs is a wisdom book. So as you read through Proverbs, I love the book of Proverbs. As you read through it, it's not gonna be black and white and give you this is a sin and this is not. This is a sin and this is not. It's gonna give you wisdom principles. Let me give you one. Proverbs 27 verse 14 says this, whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud verse, loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. Some of you are wondering why you just can't seem to advance in your career. You just can't seem to kind of win over your boss or some of you at home during quarantine, like half your day is, goes bad every day. It's because you're too loud in the mornings, right? Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be cursing. Is being loud a sin? No, it's just not wise to be really loud in the morning. And some of you are waiting for your spouse to wake up. And when they wake up, you're going, hey, I'm so glad you're awake. I've been up for like four hours and you're so awesome. And I just can't wait to have a great day with you. And it's counted as a curse because you're too loud and it's too early. Some of you show up to the office at 7 a.m. and you're gung-ho and everyone's just like, oh man, like, please. Some of you, this would be a great verse for your uh, children to memorize um, as they come running through in the mornings. (laughs) You can thank me later. Um, So, That was know the genre of the passage. Each passage has different genres or the the passages in the Bible have different genres. Next one, know the context of the passage. And we talked about this with email, right? You know, okay, this is an email. This is an electronic mail from someone to me giving me information. That's the context of it. And then when you read a specific sentence, read it in light of the whole. 
And I'll give you some ways to where you can kind of gather the whole in just a minute, but we can't just pick out one single verse and not know where it fits in light of the whole paragraph and not even the whole paragraph, but in the whole letter and think that we're gonna walk away with a good meaning. And the goal of this is application, that we would know God and we would live out his word. And if you don't know what it means, then you're not gonna be able to apply what it means correctly. So the goal starts with good exegesis. What does this mean? And to know what it means, you gotta know what the sentence says, not what it says to you, not putting yourself in the text. What does it say? What does it mean? And how does it fit in light of the whole letter that this person wrote or the whole book? Context. Here's another helpful tip. Interpret the less clear passages with the more clear passages. I did this two weeks ago. A buddy of mine, we were walking through James with the house or 20-somethings ministry here. It was phenomenal. We walked through the whole book. And towards the end of James, there was a verse that was not very clear to us. It was confusing. So what did we do? We took what we know to be true in scripture. Take the clear passages. I know this to be true. So this can't mean what we think it means. Because of this verse, and it's very clear, this verse can't mean what we think it means. And we use the passages that are clear and the passages that we know to help us interpret the ones that aren't clear because once again, there's no error in this word. It can't contradict itself. And after some hard work and some prayer and some Greek work and some other stuff, we figured out the meaning of the verse. But we use the passages that are clear to help us interpret the ones that aren't as clear. And then pet peeve of mine, this will be really helpful for you, um, maybe. Go to a church that preaches the Bible not human wisdom. Go to a church that preaches the Bible and not human wisdom. Look at 1 Corinthians. This is Paul talking. 1 Corinthians 2, he says this. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness. I wasn't above you. I didn't have the celebrity status. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but rest in the power of God. I tell you what, and I'm, trying to be really humble when I say this, but I think the American church needs less pastors who read one verse and close their Bible and walk away from it and say, the title of my message is, and start giving you their own wisdom. And we need more people to stay in the word. The podium or the pulpit, as it was called, was not a style thing. I don't know if you knew this, but old school churches that had this big podium, it wasn't a style thing. They didn't do it because it looked good. They, they had one of those because it kept the pastor behind the word and it kept the word in front of the pastor. And it may be time for us to bring one of those back in America, but that's what it was for. And I wanna challenge you as a congregation, when people get up here and deliver God's word, put us in the hot seat. When somebody reads one verse and closes this book and walks away from it, shout us down. Say, no pastor, serve us the word. We want the word this morning. We love you, you're great, but you don't have the Holy Spirit inspired words. This book does. Serve us the word, the role of a pastor is to serve the congregation, the word of God every week and not just serve them, but show them the things of God in the word of God so the people can see them for themselves. And if your faith or your spiritual growth is dependent on you watching a particular pastor every single week because you can't grow apart from what he says, then he's actually harming you. He's not helping you because the role of a pastor is to show you the things of God in the word and show you in a way that you can see them too that you can see them for yourselves. Second Timothy 
chapter four says this, verse one through four. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead and his appearing and his kingdom. Verse two, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. There's this guy named Hughes Oliphant Old. He wrote a six or seven volume work on preaching. And I can't wait to read it, but I wanna read a section of it for you. He's talking about John MacArthur here. John MacArthur is this old, not good looking pastor in America, one of the best preachers in our day, I think. And look, listen to what he says about John MacArthur. He says this, MacArthur's rhetoric is terribly out of date, but maybe he knows something the rest of us don't. Why do so many people listen to MacArthur? This product of all the wrong schools, How can he pack out a church on a Sunday morning in an age in which church attendance has seriously lagged? Here is a preacher who has nothing in the way of a winning personality, good looks, and charm. It's really nice, right? Here is a preacher who offers us nothing in the way of sophisticated homiletical packaging. No one would suggest that he is the master of the art of oratory. What he seems to have is a witness to true authority. He recognizes in scripture the word of God. And when he preaches, it is the scriptures that one hears. It is not the words, it is not that the words of John MacArthur are so interesting as it is that the word of God is of surpassing interest. That is why we listen. Because when he preaches, he shows us the things of God in the word of God. Martin Luther, one of the greatest preachers ever says, I did nothing, the word did everything. We stick to the word of God. Lastly, let me kind of close with this. Um, Why don't we read the Bible? If we're being honest, there's a lot of reasons, right? We can come up. You probably have a lot of reasons. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit, as I've been preaching, you've been thinking about all the different reasons you don't read the Bible. Let me boil it down. And I'm including myself in this. I don't say this arrogantly. Um, I don't say this like I've got it figured out by any means. Um, We don't read the Bible because we don't love the Bible. That's the core of it. We don't read the Bible because we don't love the Bible. Let me read some of these verses to you and let's see if this describes us. It says this in Psalms 40, verse eight. I delight to do your will. I delight to do your will, oh my God. Why? Because your law is within my heart. Psalms 119, 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalms 1, 1 through 2, blesses the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Job 23, 12, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. We don't even do this one well, right? Job says, I care more about the word of God than I do about food and about eating. I'm an eater, I love to eat. And I'm guilty of this one. John Piper says this. He says, if you have time for breakfast in the morning, you have time to read the word of God. Skip breakfast. The Bible is more important than breakfast. And I'm not as mean as John Piper or blunt as John Piper. John Piper is awesome. Um, But here's the thing. We don't love the word of God. That's why we don't read it. How do I know this? Because you don't struggle to read the Facebook comments about the last post that you posted. You don't struggle to read about fantasy football. You don't struggle to read when the beaches are gonna open again. We struggle to read this because we don't love it as much as we love those other things. We don't. 
And here's the thing, and this next statement, um, this is my own opinion, all right? This does not reflect the opinion of High Point Church uh, at all. Um, I would be totally fine if we never did a sermon series teaching you how to worship. I think sermon series are important, okay? How to worship. I think series about worship are important, but you don't need to know how to worship. You know how to worship, right? We worship golf. We worship our job. We worship all these other things. You don't need to be taught how to worship. We have small worship because we have a small view of God. And I think when we start preaching a big God, we will get big worship. But you don't need to be taught how to worship. You know how to love things and how to enjoy things. Our view of God is too small. And if you wanna pick a character in the Old Testament, let me give you a character that you can pick. In the Old Testament, if you wanna be somebody, we're the unfaithful Israelites who are given the word over and over again and we stray from it, we turn from it, we forget it. We don't trust it over and over again. And this one's gonna hurt. If you wanna pick someone in the New Testament that we are, we're the Pharisees, right? We're the Pharisees. The Pharisees were convicted. They were rebuked for two things in the New Testament. They loved money and they loved the praises of men. Who does that sound like? That's me, right? And here's what's so fascinating. The one phrase that Jesus used to rebuke the Pharisees over and over again is, have you not read? You're using this word to make you look good. It looks great on an Instagram bio. It looks great when you post a verse on your social media, but we're not loving it. And here's the thing, praise be to God. This is the gospel part of the message, but praise be to God that he knew that we would turn from it. He knew even while we were turning from it, while we were straying from it, while we love other things more than his word, the word became flesh, as it says in John 1. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. That's Jesus, verse 14. And the word became flesh, that even though the God of the universe knew that we would not love and cherish and read his word, the word became flesh and met the standard of the word on our behalf. And now we don't read the word so God will love us. The word tells us that God already loves us. And if your Bible reading in the morning or your devotional time is to ease your conscience because you think God is mad at you, then you're doing it wrong. We don't read the word for God to love us. We read it because he loves us. The only reason we can read his word is because he loves us. The only reason we have this word is because the word became flesh and dwelt among us and died for us. That's why we read it. Praise be to God that he knew that we wouldn't love it as much as we should and he still died for us. And if you don't know the word made flesh, our prayer this morning is that you would come to know him. That this whole book, the message of this book is about the person and the work of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners to satisfy the wrath and justice of God. That's what this whole message is pointing to. The Old Testament, all those heroes are pointing to a greater one that is to come. In the gospels, he's here. And after the gospels, it's here's what he has accomplished for us by his death on the cross. Here's how we can have salvation if we put our faith and our hope in him. And if you don't know the living, breathing word of God made flesh, if you don't know Jesus Christ, our prayer is that you would know him. And if you have questions and you want to know him, please text High Point to 97000. Please, we'd love to talk to you about that this morning. But as we close, I want us to pray the word. Um, there is not anything that you can pray that's more in line with the will of God than his very own words. And we've given you some resources on the resources slide to help you learn to pray the word. But I just wanna give you this verse that we'll pray together. It's Psalms 119 verse 18. And it says this, 
Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Let's pray that together as we close. Heavenly Father, God, that's our prayer. Open our eyes. God, give us the um, strength and the determination um, to open your word, to think, to approach it humbly and trembling. God, to really act. This is an active thing. It's not a passive thing to read our Bibles. God, help us to work at it. Um, But God, as we think, I pray that you would grant us understanding. Open our eyes and show us wondrous things in your word. God, we are so grateful for the word made flesh. We're so grateful for your son, Jesus. God, um, he's the only reason that we have this word and he's the only reason that we can read it. Um, It's his Holy Spirit that is in us that helps us read it. So God, I pray that we would be a church that loves your word, that we would be a people of the word. God, that we would meditate on it, that we would know it, that we would memorize it, that we would love it and we would obey it. God, give us the strength to do that. We cannot do that apart from you. Thank you for this word. Thank you that you breathe these words. And God, to close us in 2 Timothy 3.16, God, you have inspired this word. So our prayer is that we would continue in it, that we would remain in it. We wouldn't leave it. We wouldn't graduate from it, but we would stay right here. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things.